This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Chris Skull. I'm Ellis James. And I'm Tom Crane. And each week on this show we'll be looking at a brand new historical subject. And today we're going to be discussing pets. From the most famous horse in ancient Rome, the pets of the Mayans and the history of pigeon racing in South Wales. All right, welcome to the show. The postbag this week is chock-a-full of your wonderful emails and Ellis... You've picked out a few favourites. Yes, we love reading your emails. If you've got any correspondence you'd like to send it, you can send it to hello at owatatime.com. But we got this from Lizzie Hopley. Hello, fabulously funny history dudes. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Flattery will get you everywhere. Yours is my new (laughs) favourite podcast, so thank you. I first heard of goat licking as a form of torture when it was referred to on Game of Thrones, and it's apparently a thing. I think if you stick to the Romans and Spanish Inquisition, you'd be okay for subject matter, um, question mark. But yeah, it's not the funniest of subjects. So, can I also suggest the subject of relics? That's a great idea, I think. Items Brilliant. kept in churches and cathedrals that claim to be the actual blood, hair, slash underpants of a saint or a martyr. <laughs> so many of them were dodgy claims deliberately made up in order to promote a religion and gain popularity with pilgrims and tourists and or to raise money for the building of the cathedral. It's a really interesting thing, so we're definitely going to look into relics. But um, she, <laughs> she, she sent us a screen grab of goat licking, and it's Romans. They use tickling as a torture with goats licking feet dipped in salt water. It's an amazing picture. I mean, it goat is. licking. Just I to have... describe it, Ellis, just to describe what we're seeing there. Well, the goat looks absolutely thrilled to bits. <laughs> There's a man lying back on a plank with his bare feet uncovered and the yeah. happiest goat you've ever seen yeah. licking those feet. His legs are tethered to the plank. That's pretty bad, but a worse method of torture would be if you were forced to lick a goat yes. until it was completely it clean. Can't. A goat's hoof. Being forced to lick a goat's, a goat's hoof. hoof. A goat that's been out in the pasture for a day and you have to keep licking until it is 100% clean. <laughs> I had many hopes for this podcast, but one of them wasn't that we would look at ancient methods of torture and, and improve them. Yeah. <laughs> By the time you got around to the back bit of the goat, you're, you're confessing to anything at that point, aren't you? I've just kind of, I, whatever you want to, whatever you want to know from me. That's amazing. Also, in that email, they mentioned seeing dodgy relics. I've seen a dodgy relic. Talking about Julian Dix, the Xbox with the X West Ham player. <laughs> Jeffrey Boycott. <laughs> really nice, really nice, Alice. <laughs> it's a reminder of a bygone age. 
So I went to I went to Bruges. We we've all been to Bruges actually. I'm Tom's tag do. I went to Bruges many years ago with uh, at a very early kind of date with my, my now wife, and we went to Bruges. And I was looking for recommendations. One of my mates said, "You've got to go to the Basilica of the Holy Blood, in which they claim to have a vial of Christ's blood." So. Ooh. I went there. It's a kind of beautiful, beautiful church. You can go in there, and basically, you pay a fee, and a nun. You go up on this like little stage, and then you pay a fee, and a nun. She's got like she's a really serious-looking Mother Teresa like nun, old like a lot. Of, you feel like she's got a lot of authority, yeah. as opposed to what? Well, sorry, what, what sort of what sort of non-serious nuns are you often like, coming across? Like a like like a cool nun, a hip nun. You, you know, you know, Sister Act isn't a documentary. They're not normally that wacky. <laughs> They are generally In quite sister formal. Act, very much the older nun that's really angry. Not, not, the, not okay. the young cool yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The proper nun. What I would describe as a okay. proper nun. So she was old. So she, she'd drawn the blood herself. She looked like Indiana Jones style. She may have been manning Christ's blood for 2,000 years. Right, OK, OK. So you're still on a little stage. So she'd go up on this stage... Uh, I went in the middle of the day, there was no one else around there was one guy, who, a youngish guy, had gone in in front of me and you go up and uh, I'm watching this be happen for the first time you panned over the money to the nun and then she's got like a, a glass box but it's covered in this like purple satin kind of cloth you, st- you pay your money, you stand there and she pulls it back and you get like three or four seconds to stare at this glass vial and um, the guy, so so the guy in front of me, I'm just in the queue behind, and I, uh, she pulls it back, and he like double taps the box, like t- taps on his hand, and then she, the nun and him like exchange a nod, off he walks, and I'm like, right, well, this is the thing you've got to do, you've got to tap, <laughs> this is the thing. So I go up there, the nun pulls back the cloth, and is like, what I can only describe as like a sausage in a glass vial. <laughs> it looks, and also, I swear. I'm to Google, I haven't Googled this, but I'm swear it says on it, like, 1258 or something like that. It's got engraved with a year that is, like, at least a 1,000 years later than Christ died. Yeah. Anyway, so she pulls it back. I'm looking at this glass sausage, and I just give it a double tap. I'm like, yeah, have a nod with a nun, walk off. <laughs> then my wife's behind me. She, she comes up, nun pulls back the thing. She has a good look at it. <laughs> Double taps. <laughs> Double taps the sausage. Gives it, a, gives, it, gives it an odd walk off. And then my wife goes up to me and goes, why did you, why did you double tap it? I was like, I've got no idea. That guy, that guy fronted it. <laughs> I thought that was the thing. She goes, I don't know. The nun kind of given me a date. Because like, <laughs> like, like, you're, like you're picking tapping. out a steak bacon, Greg. <laughs> I that one. <laughs> it was a bit like a Mexican wave. Well, they're doing it. <laughs> Afterwards, I was like, "That was so absurd. The whole thing is so absurd. <laughs> why did it look? Why did it look like a sausage? Was, was his diet really bad? Why? Why? Why did it look just, You don't. You don't get enough chance to really look at it. Well, that's why. That's why they whip the thing. <laughs> that's why they're so quick with a cloth. Because <laughs> yeah, if you sort of, if it's there for too long, you're you go wait a second. That's that's actually a sausage. Yeah, what, yeah. What have I just paid? What have I paid for? So I need to put it back again. And then you wander away. You go. Oh, it can't have been a sausage. I only saw it for two seconds. It can't have been a yeah. sausage. Can it? And I was concentrating too much on the double tap. <laughs> well. If you have any similar stories of weird historical relics that you've been fooled into looking at, the more ridiculous the better. Do get in contact with the show. But we also have a brand new bit of content, don't we, Ellis? Do you want to introduce the most exciting thing that has happened on the six or seven episodes of this show so far? (laughs) It's yet another brilliant idea that's been come up with by Tom Crane's wife. So thank you, Claire. 
Um, yeah. Although you, Tom Claire. did come up with the title, <laughs> and the title of the feature is One Day Time Machine. If you could go back in time to one specific day, and you've got the whole of history to choose from, what would you choose and why? Also, I mean, this is a, a more sort of existential uh, discussion. Are you taking part? Are you a ghost? Are you invisible? Yeah, you can create your own rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> this is the thing I've never been... Like, am I, am I floating back to, I don't know, the release of Sgt Pepper? Am I simply observing? Am I quantum leaping it? So I'm a photographer at the, at the, at the release of the record and I'm having to try and fit in use, using <laughs> 60s vernacular. Am I saying groovy a lot? Or am I, am I a coffee table? Am I, am I just, yeah. The records have been placed on me. I can hear everything, but I can't say anything. I can't contribute. It's completely up to you. An awkward moment when you've chosen coffee table and they've all moved into another room for some reason. <laughs> and now you're stuck in an empty room. Can you move? Are you a walking coffee table? Are you a cup? Li- are you a cup like Chip from Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> These are all questions we need you to tell us. We need you to answer. It's one day time machine. Thank you, my wife Claire. And here is how you get in contact with the show. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. I'm going to be talking about the crazy pets of ancient Rome. I will be talking about the phenomenon that was pigeon fancying in industrial areas, in particular South Wales. And I'll be talking about the pets of the Mayans and the Aztecs. So pets. Quick question, are, are, you, are you pets people? Let's, let's, let's just ask that. Are you, are you into animals? Seriously considering a cat because my children are obsessed with cats and the joy they feel every time they see a cat, even if it's just a picture of a cat on a postcard, makes me think <laughs> that I should pull the trigger and kill a cat. And buy a cat. Yeah. But no, I haven't had a dog when I was a little kid, but I haven't, I haven't owned a pet. And goldfish. Oh, nice. Uh, goldfish, actually, from the fair, which ended up live, sort of breaking records and living until they were about 14. Oh, really? Wow. The, the, I had, well, I had the same thing. I had a goldfish called Sooty, and I said to my dad, when I was about 20, I said, wasn't it mad that that goldfish Sooty lived till it was like 12 years old? And he was like, there were about eight versions of Sooty. <laughs> <laughs> like, into my 20s, I believed it was the same character. <laughs> It was getting replaced all the time, and I never well, noticed. You're saying into your twenties. I'm forty-two, so great. Thank you. You've ruined my childhood, there, Chris. That's, <laughs> that's, that's that's brilliant. Claire went to a dinner party once with some friends, two of whom are sisters, and they were talking about their dog they had growing up and how. Is this going to be a pet salad? Dog? It is a pet salad. <laughs> <laughs> And they were talking about their dog they'd had growing up, and they were saying, "Do you know what?" But the thing it was, it was such an intelligent dog that at the age of six, it uh, went and worked for the um, the police as a as a sniffer dog. They it was it was headhunted as such a brilliant dog. It went and worked <laughs> for the police. One of the guys there was one of these girls' new boyfriends, and he went. He was obviously put down, wasn't it? 
and they, they both their faces dropped neither of them had realised no. and they were like in their 30s that this dog hadn't been headhunted and drafted into the police oh <laughs> clearly been God. at best <laughs> put in a pound also <laughs> that is that makes it sound like <laughs> like the sort of the the, the, the the scouting network you have for, for kids, like, oh yeah, there's this eleven year old boy and he's in Norfolk <laughs> and Man United are after him. The idea that that is how the the police dog team at the Met find dogs. They just walk around looking for really well behaved pets. Police <laughs> That one Police Scouts watching. <laughs> Do you, you want to it- serve your country? <laughs> <laughs> well and every every so often Obviously, the dad did this. They would receive letters from the dog with a paw print at the bottom saying the crimes it had been involved in. So, obviously, it had been really perpetuated, this lie. But then this realisation that, oh, no. I hope the crimes that the dog was allegedly involved in were like the really big famous crimes of the day. (laughs) Brinks Matt. Yeah, all of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, he did the great train robbery. Brinks Matt. Wow. We know, you know a dog nicked the World Cup? Well, the, our dog found it again. <laughs> he's, he's looking for WMD. That is absolutely <laughs> incredible. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a journey, guys, back to ancient Rome to talk to you about the pets of ancient Rome. Are, are you up for that? Yes. Love ancient Rome. Love going back there. It's one of my favourite places to mentally travel to it when is. we do this. And also it feels sunny in my mind. It feels like a bit of a holiday. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if I think about medieval Britain, it's not like... I don't feel, oh, good, I'm going on a trip back to medieval Britain. <laughs> no, I just think of sludge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do not, do not wear your white trainers to go back to medieval Britain. No, my God, no. Absolutely. So, here we are. We're, we're back in ancient Rome. Now, ancient Rome was a an interesting time for pets, mainly... Emperors. Now, I'm going to start you off by telling you about the most famous pet in the history of ancient Rome. Now, Gaius Caesar, better known as Emperor Caligula, had a favourite horse um, called Incitatus. Now, have you heard of Incitatus? I haven't. No, but I've okay. heard of Caligula. Yes. So, Bit of a boy. He was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, top lad. And this horse held quite a um, cherished role in his life. So much so that he made the horse a priest... And he he also was in discussions, people feel, about him becoming a member of the Senate. So this is how much he loved. I've heard that. I've actually heard that. Yeah. But what... Wasn't that because he was like he hated the Senate and he was like my horse could do a better job than you? Yes, they, they, there's, there's, there are feelings amongst some historians that the part of the reason he was doing this was basically a way of riling the Senate, who he hated. Yeah, yeah. But the, I guess the alternative, the alternative is that he thought this horse would genuinely do a good job. Yeah, it's like Mr. Ed, he's got some good it, ideas. How would it vote? Well, I'll tell you what, this the nays would have it. Who fuck? Yeah, when that the nays would have it. Oh, very. <laughs> He's one of the nation's top comedy writers. (laughs) I had that written on my pad here. That's not off the cuff, but I had that that ready to go. I mean, this this guy's written 27 C's of the last leg. (laughs) And now now you're writing jokes about Caligula. Thank God, you know, if the last leg was on in ancient Rome, just imagine what you'd have achieved. You've been topical for 2,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) Feelings on a a horse in government? Well, do, do a better job than this lot, right? Of course, someone had to say it. If he was doing it 
to prove a point about the Senate mm. in a sort of my horse could do a better job than this slot. I really, really admire that as a as a kind of bargaining tool slash argument. That's a very, very funny thing to say. Yeah. Can you imagine if Keir Starmer filled his shadow cabinet with animals? <laughs> <laughs> the dispatch box. <laughs> like, I don't know, a, a goose or something. Or a cockerel. <laughs> the Speaker of the House yelling, order, order, louder and louder, as a <laughs> monkey rips off Rhys Mogg's face. <laughs> also, as we all know, Britain is a nation of pet lovers. <laughs> You, you you definitely win votes from some people. People love horses. Yeah. When you think about what they spend on racehorses, they would, they would definitely be a person voting for the horse party, I reckon, if you put horses up for election. True. I think you'd grow to love it as well. You, like, if I you, think you'd if you get saw... your deposit back. <laughs> I, I think in a rural constituency, <laughs> if you put a horse up for election, you'd definitely get your deposit back. <laughs> It would have to be Green Party or something like that. I think they'd have to be a, <laughs> that way leaning, surely. So, this horse, Incatatus, although it didn't actually make it into the Senate, it lived a sort of quite a crazy privileged life. So, firstly, it had a diet which was described as fit for a king. Would you like to guess what its main go-to food was? What it's uh, what what it, what it would normally have? Wine. Wine. <laughs> Not a bad guess, actually. Pheasants. So its main meal was uh, oats mixed with gold. So it would have oats gold. with flakes of gold stirred through it. And this was basically what this horse would eat every meal. If you're a stable hand, because go- that gold's going straight through like sweet corn. Surely the rush to be sifting <laughs> that, through that. That is that. a very good point. There's <laughs> a way to plump up your wages. Is that, that can't be good for anyone, though. Any mammal eating sort of gold leaf. Yeah. yeah, you would just want the best oats rather than oats mixed with gold, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I suppose it's quite hard to sort of sift through your oats when you've got yeah. hooves, you isn't want, it? You, you can't really yeah. pick them out. <laughs> you want or- organic jumbo oats if you're a horse. If you need the, if you need money, put it into a bank account. <laughs> but what was weirder? The, the the gold in the oats isn't the weirdest thing. The weirdest thing is that this horse he wouldn't eat alone in his stable, according to the Roman historian Suetonius. The horse would eat in the royal court, sat with visiting dignitaries and being served by waiters. So imagine turning up to a dinner party, or like an event, and you're looking at your name on the table plan, and you're thinking, please, please don't be, I really don't want to be sat by the horse. <laughs> and you go, oh no. And then you are, you're sat by the horse, and you're asking to pass you the wine, it keeps knocking stuff over. Yeah. Also... <laughs> Eating all the apples. <laughs> in the pre-mobile phone age... Pre-smartphone age, you'd be forced to try and make conversation. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. You couldn't just think, oh, "Sorry, I'll check my emails." You'd be like, "So, uh, a gold leaf? Then does it taste nice, or do you mainly taste oats when you read?" I don't, I don't know. Man. How long till you break out the "Why the long face" joke? It would oh be. yeah. Well, for you, I would say that would be straight away, straight, straight off the bat. In absolute panic. So they would sit at the table with this horse. They'd eat with this horse. They'd eat his gold, but. Eating with your pets at the table wasn't kind of a particularly weird thing for, for emperors. So uh, Emperor Elagabalus had tame lions and leopards as pets, which he would use. Now, yeah. now then, now then, now then. <laughs> I, I have a real issue with the idea of a tame lion. Completely agree. That is nonsense, isn't it? It's an oxymoron. They are not domesticated animals. 
yeah. even if you've even if you've brought it up since it was a tiny cub. Is this your line in the sand? No, no. <laughs> is this your the thing that you'll? This is the thing you'll die. It on? is fair to say that if I turned up at some sort of formal meal. <laughs> and there were tame lions there. I would shit myself. I would be yeah. out of there faster. I don't care, you know. Faster if, than if a it's lion. A if, <laughs> if, it's a co- <laughs> if it's a corporate event and I'm being paid money to, I'd be like, you keep the money. Yeah. Here's my script. <laughs> Do it yourself. <laughs> script, eh? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, someone professional. <laughs> yeah. Here's a couple of uh, post-it notes. I've jotted a few ideas down on. <laughs> Work it out for yourself. Was that a subtle um, comment to any corporate bookers that might be listening that you do prepare and you are professional? It was, it was a very, very transparent come get me plea. Because <laughs> I've overstretched myself on the mortgage. So it was, it was weirder than that, though, Ellis. Not only did he have lions and leopards, uh, he would also choose to release them during dessert and encourage them to get up on the furniture, basically, because he found it hilarious when the guests would start to panic. Because his oh, point that's... of view was, he knew they were tame, but my guests don't. That was his point of view. God. Can you imagine the terror? The idea of, of lions, brackets, inverted commas, tame lions being released as a prank. Absolutely. Can you think of anything the, the, more petrifying? I mean, if the lion roars at you and then Caligula goes around, turns around and goes, don't worry, they're tame. You're just like, <laughs> fuck off, mate. <laughs> You're best mates with a horse. I'm not listening to you. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you on about? It's a lion. Is it a man in a lion outfit? No, it's a real lion. Then it's a lion. The basic rule of a dinner party is, I think, should be that at no point should you be made to feel like you're going to be one of the courses. I think that's that's quite a fair thing to like. If, is if that you your got, red line? That is my red line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that joke would go really well at a corporate as well because it's clean. <laughs> It's relevant. Okay. <laughs> there's there's no real victims in it. Yeah. I mean, sort of. You you've got red faced CEOs in their in their sixties were like that, and the younger the younger people were like it as well. That's good stuff. I'm now going to add to your pitch, and I'm going to pitch myself. So you'll get Ellis for a reasonable fee, and I will rate write for Ellis. So we'll get a yeah, double. Yeah, you'll yeah. get a double whammy. Skull. What we Skull can do audio. You can do the audio. That yeah, is yeah, good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> We're here to celebrate the life of Stephen, who unfortunately last month, as we all know, was eaten by a lion at a dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they, they, these, these lions would come out, people would freak out, they'd run away, and that was basically the way it, the way it was at uh, emperor's dinner parties. But for the general public in ancient Rome, they also had a real passion for animals. Now, the average animals that they kept actually aren't that different to what we have now. The dog... The cat and the caged bird were the main three for normal households in ancient Rome. Yeah. And archaeologists have actually, they've genuinely discovered beware of the dog signs in the ruins of ancient Pompeii. That is superb. How cool is that? That's, yeah, that's cool. If it wasn't dogs, as I say, it was, it was, it was um, caged birds. The main one that your average Roman owned was the parrot. And they loved it mainly for its ability to mimic the writer Apuleius, who tells us that were standard Roman practices, basically, for trying to train your parrot to speak. He says, when it is being taught to imitate human speech, the parrot is beaten over the head with an iron wand that it may recognise its master command. And that is the rod of its school days. So basically, you would teach it what you want it to learn. You give it a whack on the head when it said the word that's correct or maybe got it wrong, I guess it would make more sense. And then that's how people would teach their parrots to mimic. But he goes on to say that you must... Be careful, because teaching a parrot to swear, it will swear continually. 
making night and day hideous with its imprecations. Swearing becomes its natural note and its ideal of melody. When it's repeated all its curses, it repeats the same strain again. <laughs> I cannot foresee any situation where I wouldn't find a parrot swearing yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> A funeral, maybe? No, oh, no it's still funny, it, yeah. would be, it would be fantastic at a funeral. Apuleius does have advice for what happens if you do end up with a swearing parrot. He says, should you desire to rid yourself of its bad language, you must either cut out its tongue or send it back as soon as possible to its native woods. But I would think about this. If you sent a swearing parrot back to the woods, wouldn't it just teach all the other parrots in that woods to swear? <laughs> and then you'd live in the funniest country of all time. Productivity would crash because everyone's just laughing all the time. I would never get used to it, and I'd never not love it. Yeah. It <laughs> would be fantastic. Going on a romantic stroll through a wood with your, your partner and being told you're a wanker by 400 parrots. <laughs> <laughs> that she can do better. <laughs> Let's talk about the Aztecs and the Mayans. So the Aztecs and the Mayans of pre-conquest Central and South America were as enthusiastic as the Romans about keeping pets, and the dog in particular played a powerful role in domestic life and in religious practice, particularly those aspects related to the afterlife. It was thought that dogs were there in the underworld to guide souls to their final destination. Ooh. And the Mayans believed that dogs were responsible for bringing humans the knowledge of fire. Right. If you're a dog and you need to convey how to make fire, how are you going about that? You haven't watched Lassie for a long time, have you? Uh... <laughs> could Lassie talk? How was she doing that? Lassie could communicate. But only to that one boy? Yeah. Well, there's a, a young girl's trapped on a mine shaft. What, Lassie? <laughs> What's that? Get two sticks and rub them together yeah. for hours? And then take that hot ash and pour it onto Kindle and then waft it for an hour and then put some bigger logs on. You say we need wood to start a fire. What sort of wood? And then Lassie would go, bark. And you go, oh, that's fine. <laughs> Again, it's good stuff for a corporate event. <laughs> for a very particular bark-based corporate. A factory that shaves off bark from trees for some kind yeah. of... Ideally for use in Tinder. And sort of, uh... Oh, this is a... Uh, Tinder, there's got to be a joke there oh, yeah. to do with the dating app as well. <laughs> Absolutely delighted to perform at the uh, Wales and Southwest Tree Surgeon of the Year Awards. And uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Lassie. <laughs> It's all good stuff. <laughs> so they, but they, they genuinely believe that dogs had taught them how to. The Mayans believed that dogs had conveyed the knowledge of fire to humans. Wow, interesting. You'd be quite annoyed if you were the guy who had discovered fire in in Mayan civilization, and like, there's some guy called Dave or whatever. He's like, you keep going, no, it was me. I did. You saw. Everyone was there. You saw yeah. me rub the things together. <laughs> Someone else is saying. Actually, it was Rover. Rover told Dave. And Dave's like, no, Rover didn't tell me anything. I like Rover, and I will feed Rover, and I will take Rover for walks. But he, I, I'm the fire guy. It was Rover, actually. Well, maybe that's what happened. We need to nip this in the bud now. <laughs> what happened, Ellis, is that 
Dave and Rover. Rover was there. The idea was mine. Exactly. Dave and Rover, they've gone off on a walk together, just the two of them. <laughs> and when they've come back, Dave has worked out how to make fire. And everyone's gone, well, no way Dave came out with that. Come on. <laughs> Dave, he's an idiot. Dave is thick as shit. It's got to be the dog. It's got to be the dog. <laughs> There's no other... There's no other explanation. I smell a t-shirt range, Cal. That's our first merch. It's got to be the dog on it's t-shirt. It's got to be the dog. <laughs> With Dave holding two sticks alight and the dog looking proud. Do you expect Do you expect me to believe, Dave, that that was you and not Rover? So hang on. Mate, you has been around piss. for 50,000 years and not worked out how to do fire and you just walk off with that dog and you've, you, Dave, I'm meant to believe that you figured this out. And the dog just happened to be there. All right, fine, it was collaborative. <laughs> the Aztecs domesticated a relative of the Chihuahua, and these served as family pets, much as the Chihuahua does today. Larger dogs, domesticated by both the Aztecs and the Mayans, were used as companions on hunting trips, uh, and both types were fed a corn-based diet, which helped to fatten up the animal over a period of about a year, at which point... According to the available archaeological evidence, the dogs were killed and then eaten by their owners. Oh, wow. oh no. Any story involving the Mayas and the Aztecs is like, oh, they're doing something nice here. Oh, that's yeah. nice that they're feeding, they're plumping up that dog. Oh, they're eating it. Oh, dear. It always comes back to killing oh, and eating everything. dear. Wow. But apparently dog meat was an essential source of protein for the, the Aztecs and the Mayans. Okay. In the 1500s... Spanish conquistadors such as Bernal Diaz de Castillo saw the menagerie of animals kept by the Aztec emperor Moctezuma and noted there was nothing pet-like about the beasts kept in cages. The Spaniard actually wrote he saw that he saw every kind of eagle and every species of bird in their full pl- splendor of plumage. All these birds, he said, had appropriate places to live and were under the care of several aviculturists hmm. who had to keep the nest clean give proper food and set the birds for breeding right and there's also evidence that the conquering europeans insisted that the animals were looked after properly and fed dog meat and the offal of human sacrifice what's the belief around that and whether they were actually feeding or is it they think this is a a western version of well they definitely kept they definitely kept them yes. and this this is why in the wake of the conquistadors, men of learning arrived from Europe to study the civilizations that had been encountered, and these men produced various documents, notably the Florentine Codex, a multi-volume work which detailed everyday life and natural history in Central and South America. And in the book, we find in- evidence of the importance attached to the brightly coloured plumage of birds such as the macaw. So it was the plumage, really, which is why they were keeping them. Specifically, the macaw. So, travel, traders travelled vast distances, some measuring hundreds of miles, to gather the finest, most colourful birds. They were then domesticated, kept as pets for many years. It was the feathers that were routinely harvested. Oh, so, the macaw may have escaped being eaten, but it was a full-time working pet all the time. And its feathers, you see them on the headdresses the Aztecs and the Mayans wore, and all those other ritual pieces of clothing. You know the people looking after the birds mm. with the Aztecs? Sort of, you know, working in the aviaries. I reckon that is what I would have done. Yeah, I'm not a hunter. I'm, I'm not, I'm not cut out for government. Yeah, I think I just would have kept my head down, and I'd yeah. have been look. I'd, be, I'd have been the macaw guy. Yeah, you do, you don't want to be on that altar with your heart being held aloft while no. you look on. God no. You, 
I think that's actually the secret to survival in Aztec society is like find a niche that find you know a, niche a lot about it. and then you sort it. No offence. I, I, de- I, I really believe that within six months you'd have been pecked to death by a macaw. <laughs> I do believe that would have happened. You'd have done something wrong and three macaws would have turned on you. No, I wouldn't have died, but I'd have, I'd have, had, I'd have been pecked in really embarrassing places. Yeah. I'd have... <laughs> Absolutely. I'd have been pecked in really embarrassing places and the whole town would have seen. <laughs> yeah, the whole town would have seen. A macaw would have pulled your shorts down in the town square. <laughs> to the Peruvian Andes, mm. uh, where guinea pigs were kept as pets, one writer suggested that their squeaks and constant scurrying about and noisiness provide a companionship for in otherwise isolated communities. That is an idea, isn't it? Oh. Just release thousands of guinea pigs in, in an isolated community. They'll make everyone just feel... They've, it's busy. It's a busy, dynamic place to be living. I had a guinea pig when I was growing up, and I remember about two weeks in going, "Oh, this is quite annoying now." <laughs> and I, I like. I just remember. Is this that, it? It was like a weekend. It was like a Sunday afternoon, and it's all tipped. I was like, I just can't be bothered anymore. Obviously, I kept. So my, I think my mum just basically took over from that point on, which is terrible. Yeah, of course. I was only about of eight, course. but yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's a story that's been repeated in households up and down the country forever. So in uh, in the Peruvian Andes, some mummified guinea pigs have been found in human graves, indicating close association with their human owners. You're hoping those guinea they I mean, are they sticking those guinea pigs in alive, basically? Okay, yeah. Yes, that's the great fear. I find that quite comforting, though, that, you know, you, you, you read in the newspaper every few months, like an, an elderly person will leave all of their money to their cat. Or someone will die, one of children, they leave all the money to Batsy Dog's home. And we, people still have globally enormous uh, uh, relationships, incredibly powerful relationships mm. with their pets. And there's something quite comforting about the continuity that suggests that it's it's such an instinctive part of the human condition, Yeah, the urge to domesticate animals. I think yeah. there's something quite nice about that. Yeah, it really, really is. You know, um, when the, the Europeans were abs- had their minds blown by guinea pigs, um, and they were brought back, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, the Elizabethan You'd never period. Seen one. It'd be incredible. Wouldn't it? <laughs> the Elizabethan period is really notable for the amount of guinea pigs brought back from the New World. And if you have a look at the portraits of like members of elite society, including the Queen, there are guinea pigs. All over the place. It was the big thing in Elizabethan society. The royal seal of approval made the guinea pig a very fashionable accessory to possess. Kind of like Paris Hilton, I guess, and those little dogs you keep in a handbag. In our street, we have an albino squirrel. <laughs> and this thing, it comple- it sets the WhatsApp group, the street WhatsApp group, alight. Because if you spot the albino squirrel out of your back window, out of the kitchen window, suddenly you've got to you've got to take a photo of it and you've got to text it to the street WhatsApp group, and then you will get thirty replies. It is it's, people when you see a slightly uh, curious animal like a guinea pig, if if you've never seen one before, they're sort of they're sort of incredible, aren't they? It's the albino squirrel. Is he sort of? Situation was as the red squirrels and the grey squirrels are fighting. Is he in the middle, sort of trying to mediate? What's the situation? Because <laughs> he hasn't got a, he hasn't got a side to be on. <laughs> no, he hasn't. No. Okay. Well, I am going to take on a walk uh, now. If you go on a walk to the South Wales Valleys, you will sometimes 
come across a well-appointed small shed that's not far uh, from a house, but it's far enough. If you get close, you will hear the comforting coo of pigeons, for this is the pride and joy of a fancier, the latest in generations of working-class men who really, really love their birds. Now, as the Glamorgan advertiser put it in 1927, there are three things of which the Welsh miner is particularly fond. Any visitor to the valleys would be impressed by the number of pigeon lofts to be found in back gardens. They will often, too, see miners with large crates full of pigeons upon their shoulders proceeding to the railway station where they are dispatched to other stations up and down the line. The Welsh miner is also keen on rugby and, last but not least, he's fond of a sermon. So what a life that is. (laughs) Pigeons, rugby and chapel. They're the big three. So you're working long hours in a very, very dangerous place of work. What are the three? things you do to unwind. It's pigeon time, it's rugby time, and it's chapel time. Now, such was the popularity of pigeon racing and pigeon fencing. I always think the pigeon fencing is quite an unfortunate name. Exactly what I'm thinking it is. It feels yeah. like <clears throat> something someone would say to you at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <he's> a pigeon <laughs> fancy. Because you once stood near a pigeon and you're saying, "Yeah, oh. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't fancy people. He fancies pigeons." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now. This was replicated in other working-class areas of Britain uh, as well. And it was so popular that an entire subculture grew up around the sport in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So men, and occasionally women, spent their earnings building ever-grander coops, coats, lofts or foul houses, furnishing them with the best facilities they could afford. They spent money on buying the best birds, on subscribing to magazines and travelling to shows and to competitions all over Britain and abroad. Belgium, Spain and France in particular. Belgium... That they were, uh, yeah, that it was a very, very big scene in Belgium, the pigeon fancying scene, uh, very, very popular there. And I suppose that is no different now to people spending money on golf clubs yeah. or mm. bikes or any, any of the sort of things that people do at the weekend to unwind. It's just it's, it. It has gone out of fashion. You still you still see it. They, they're still about, but it it has gone out. So would of you see that? So when you go back home, would you, do you? There are still pigeon fanciers around, are there? Not as much. It was something I remember from when I was a little kid. Okay, like it was the kind of thing that sort of a few friends' grandfathers were into. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know anyone who does it now. But it was it was something that you were kind of aware of. But I see it as a very very old-fashioned thing. What about you? Do you know? What I was just thinking. Isn't it funny? Was it like the seventies or eighties where was it? Richard da- David Attenborough was he with the yeah. old commissioner? He put darts and snooker on the telly, and it just went mad. If pigeon racing was a televised sport, I think I would watch it. How are you showing it? That's the problem. Well, this is, you could, this you is, could this attach is, a, you could attach a GoPro to a pigeon. That would be Attenborough's first question. You'd basically cover it like you covered the Tour de France. Yeah, you'd have a lot of drones. You'd be going back to people in the studio. Analysing the pigeons to see whether they're looking knackered. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you know what we're saying? This doping in pigeon racing is a thing. No way. No. So yeah, I was reading about this. So you know how obviously in the nineties, doping, doping and cycling was huge, and it's obviously there's all those Tour de France races in the, sort of the two thousand no winners because yeah, they were yeah, won yeah. by Lance Armstrong. Yeah, people dope pigeons, believe it or not, because it's such a big business, right? Wow. Now advertising columns in the newspapers offered single birds or small flocks for sale, as well as equipment, new and second hand, and adverts for books like Fulton's Book of Pigeons, which apparently was indispensable for true fanciers. Uh, so the, and there would, there would be reviews of sort of pigeon-based books. Small flock. Do you think that's kind of you don't really know what you're going to get? You're just hoping there's a good one in there. 
Like, there's a real culture yeah. now of people buying retro clothing in bags and you don't know what you're going to get. Yes. It's a huge thing on eBay. So you might be in there, you get like a, a 1994 Brazil shirt and it's worth loads of money, but it may also be just loads of rubbish. Yeah, and you can you can do that with kids' clothes as well, where you just get sent, sent a bundle of yeah. children's clothing that hasn't really been sorted Buying out. Like a flock of it's birds. A, well, for a while, there were pigeon dealerships on the high street. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, next to like the Nissan garage. Yeah, well, it's like a sort of cross between a car showroom and a, and a drug lord. <laughs> And, and they would employ kids uh, to nick pigeons, or they'd encourage children to nick pigeons, to sell to the dealers for a pittance, who in turn then sold them for large sums on the open market. Because pigeons were, you know, they were, they were really sought after. Now, the Rhondda in the South Wales Valleys was the absolute heartland of this sort of pet culture. And in the Rhondda, pigeons, they were loved, they were stroked, they were caressed. <laughs> Competitions in the 1890s could attract hundreds of entries, and there were as many as 15 separate classes of competition under the umbrella of the Treherbert Dog and Poultry Show alone, right? Now, that's one village in one part of the run there. And this tally was matched in every other township in the valley. So that's loads and loads of competitions. I mean, they were everywhere. I mean, at one point, people said South Wales might have almost been as famous for pigeons as it was for coal. (laughs) <laughs> One miner said that uh, just before the First World War, there were probably four or five pigeon lofts in every street, each loft housing about 30 birds. Some that, so that's 150 pigeons per street. Wow. Now, the thing is, right, when I'm eating a sandwich in a major sort of city <laughs> railway station and I'm surrounded by pigeons, I've never thought to myself, I need more of these in my life. Yeah. <laughs> but the opposite of that, if you're a pigeon fancier and you're in a railway station and you see the Usain Bolt of pigeons... Do you think to yourself, how I've got to get that pigeon? I've got to somehow, you know, grab a hold of that because that pigeon is money. Do you think now, that is a very good point? However, the ones that you see in railway stations always tend to look really unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All club foot and yeah. I never see. I I never see a pigeon like at London Bridge and think to myself, that is the that's the picture of health. That, that pigeon <laughs> is that pigeon on steroids. <laughs> We were all there at Josh Whittacombe's uh, London wedding. There was a little park just up the road from it. And uh, I was with Charlie, my boy, who would have been two at the time. We were in the little park. And I went, oh, look over there. There's a little pigeon. Should we go and see the pigeon? And I picked him up. And we walked across to look at the pigeon. And the pigeon was missing its head. Oh, and whoa. it was such a London moment. It was such a sort of, what am I doing living here? What the hell am I thinking? Just like, yeah. literally no head. There was another time about, another really sort of animal London moment, about a year ago when I was with my boys and a couple of their friends in a little park and they were all looking across in a bush. And I said, oh, what game are you playing? And they said, we're looking for the rat. And they were spending the... <laughs> They basically there's a huge rat, and they just spent an hour trying to find this rat in a bush near some bins. That's what life in the capitals like. (laughs) During lockdown, when options were severely limited, we used to go to Crystal Palace Park and look at the rats. And I remember then thinking, this has to be my lowest end. (laughs) Such a Dickensian Britain. What do you want to do, kids? Do you want to look at the rats? Yeah, we used to look. We used to stand there and I would hold their hands and go, look at all of those rats. Take a little flute and try and lure them to the river? Was it that Can't, sort of we, go- <laughs> Can't we go to the zoo, Dad? No, we're looking at the rats. 
150 birds per, pigeons per street. Some are more wow. commodious than the rooms in the miners' cottages, talking about the lofts. On the day of a big race, the whole village would be agog and the backyard crowded with people looking at the sky as though expecting a new comet or the eclipse of the sun. Wow. Now, unsurprisingly, given the importance attached to the sport, pigeons became points of conflict. Some regarded them as a public health nuisance. Others, as nodes of the local economy, thefts were endemic, in part driven by those unscrupulous dealers, and the local courts dealt with endless cases of so-called pigeon larceny, which is an old-fashioned theft. So that's a side word for theft, I should say. So that's aside from shooting pigeons, murdering them in other ways or simply letting them go free. Now, in 1867, one Swansea man was sent down for six months after nicking a pigeon. Imagine getting six months of bird. Wow. For nicking a pigeon. Doing bird. <laughs> yeah, doing bird. <laughs> that, I've, I've Maybe got to the term. Maybe it is. <laughs> no, it's not. Is that where the term bird comes from? In, in Cardiff, them. others face prison sentences of anywhere between a month and three months off the same crimes. If you're going to steal a pigeon, you want a Cardiff jury and a Cardiff magistrate. Six months. Because then you'll get off. You won't get off scot-free, but you'll do less time would than you, Swansea. If you were in prison, Ellis, and you, or, or, and you got, would you admit that's what you're down for? I would say murder. Yeah. And then I would hope that no one looked into it. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, and I, I only got six months because the judge was so scared of me. He could be too scared to <laughs> yeah. give me more than six months. <laughs> Even children weren't immune to punishment. 11 year old William Edwards received six weeks in prison and a whipping oh, for no. stealing a single tame pigeon in Swansea in 1864. In Swansea, they came down really hard on any kind yeah. of pigeon larceny. Wow. And in 1879, 13-year-old Francis Williams from Cardiff received six strokes of the cane. I mean, it's not a pleasant punishment, but you'd take the, you'd take the cane over prison, wouldn't you, for, yeah. for pigeon larceny? Yeah. Absolutely. You'd be hoping for the cane. Yeah. Uh, even where birds weren't stolen, the items necessary to make a loft, such as wooden boxes, uh, might well be. This happened in Aberdeen in 1903. The result, no box and a fine of 40 shillings or two quid, which is an awful lot of money back then. Wow. That must be, yeah, that's loads. An indication... Uh, of the value of pigeons from a newspaper article published in 1890 when one man went to court in Newport claiming a pound in damages. One of his flyers had been shot dead by a rival fancier. I mean, this is like gangster stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Shot dead. A quid, right, which seems a lot of money. But as the newspaper pointed out, a pound is a small sum to ask for a homing pigeon. 15 and 20 pounds are ordinary prices. And for one particular bird in South Wales, 100 quid is asked. What? 100 pound in 1890 is worth about 10 and a half grand today. That is no. worth more than my car. That's crazy. That pigeon must be unbelievable. Imagine telling your wife that you'd spent 10 and a half thousand pounds on a pigeon. <laughs> Oh, I've done it again. What if what? I've treated myself to what? I've treated myself to South Wales' best pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) How how much did you spend on it? A hundred quid. What? Well, I don't understand. Is well, how much joy do you get? Because what of those pigeon races? I don't get it. I don't get it. Because they let them off from one place and then they fly back to your house. So you just. Where's the adrenaline rush there? Pigeon fancying just does not do it for me at all. Also, currently, so I imagine if you do it today, you release your pigeon, and because we can drive, you can get to the finish line ahead of the pigeon and see who wins. Surely, well, some back then, some pigeon races are like six hundred miles. Oh, really? Okay. Wow. Well, yeah, well back yeah. then, there's no way you are getting there before the pigeon. So you're not even getting the satisfaction of seeing your... <laughs> yeah. Unless someone else goes and releases it for you from the start point and you stand at 
the end. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. But I'm just, yeah, it's where the satisfaction is. You'll just get there and your pigeon will be home already. It'll be tucked into bed. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be having a cocoa. (laughs) Doing stretches in an ice bath after the... uh... (laughs) Yeah, he's on a a static bike just doing some recovery before the next race. (laughs) Oh, dear. Anyway, that's that's pigeons. Huge part of the uh, sporting culture of South Wales. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Amazing. I one little thing. You mentioned there that in one street there could be four or five houses with all these it must have been really noisy. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm just trying to and It would have pissed me off. A it lot of poo everywhere me. as well. Like if you oh, yes. it must have been absolutely oh. covered, surely. I mean, unless yeah. they're all kept in their boxes. But imagine that every morning, the dawn chorus, there's four hundred pigeons just going yeah. mad. Go, 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 go. Oh, Piss off. I'm working nights. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed what you've just heard, hey... Why it's my turn to beg for a rating and review. Why not jump on your podcast app, give us five stars, and tell us that you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, if you haven't enjoyed it, keep it to yourself. But it does help with a little thing called discoverability. So all those other history fans out there who have no idea this podcast exists, your rating and review will make a difference. It's all about community, Chris, isn't it? It's about creating a community. That's what we want to do here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if that's a bad thing, if, if, you know, if creating community in this divided time is a bad thing, then, you know... So shoot me. And so, and also, if you've seen any dodgy relics, and also, have you got any ideas around One Day Time Machine? We're going to end this show with the jingle that I'm going to create for One Day Time Machine. Send them in. Hello at ohwhatatime.com. That's it for this week. Until next week. Bye. It's the One Day Time Machine. 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 It's the One Day Time Machine.